This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Diane Morfield, CFO of Cyrus One, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 483. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Glennis Bryan, CFO of Insight Enterprises of Tempe, Arizona. With more than $7 billion in annual sales and 7,000 employees, Enterprise today has an M&A mindset and an undeniable appetite for growth. Setting the stage back in 2012, Insight overhauled its internal systems, establishing a single platform from which to integrate acquisitions and satisfy that growth appetite. It's a platform that CFO Brian has gotten to know well as she routinely weighs the obstacles and advantages that future merger partners may bestow. Our interview begins after these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking to Glennis Bryan, CFO of Insight Enterprises of Tempe, Arizona. It's a provider of cloud technology services and data, data center transformation services. Glennis, welcome. Thank you, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So, Glennis, uh, as you may know, uh, we enjoy uh, speaking to finance leaders about their careers as well as about their businesses, uh, but we always kick off by asking our guests to look back for us and tell us a little bit about their background and those experiences they feel help prepare them for a CFO role. What comes to mind for you? Well, um, I think I developed my career at Ryman System in Miami. That's probably where I was when I made the determination that I wanted to be a CFO. So I have a little bit of a non-traditional path. I'm originally from Jamaica, went to university in Canada. My parents moved to Miami, and I ended up um, with an undergraduate degree in psychology and then did my MBA. And Ryder recruited me as an intern when I was completing my MBA, and I never thought that I would spend my life, spend 17 years of my life working for a trucking company. But when I first started there, I was in financial planning and analysis. I'm not a CPA, and I actually wanted, when I started out, to head and lead the M&A function at Ryder. And then from there, I wanted to be a treasurer because Ryder did these very sexy structures with, um, they borrowed $2 billion a year and helped these very interesting financing structures. And I'm a finance geek at the end of the day. So I wanted to be a treasurer. And then when I got to be the treasurer, I determined when I was at Ryder System that I really wanted to be the CFO because all the business decisions got made in finance at the CFO level. The CFO was the person that had the seat at the table around strategy, future direction of the company, what the business was going to be doing. And I wanted to be in a position ultimately to be making those decisions. So while I was at Ryder, I made the determination that I wanted to be a CFO. And I started from there just kind of looking around as to where can I go ultimately to get that CFO experience. So I would say that my success in life today, having transitioned from transportation for most of my career to technology here at Insight for the second half of my career. My foundation is where I learned at Insight, in, sorry, at Ryder with all those different finance functions that I rotated through. And by the time I got to Insight, I was totally comfortable um, coming into a new industry, coming into that I didn't know at all, and being comfortable that my finance foundation was so strong that I would actually get up to speed and be in value to the business. That's a snapshot of my journey to the CFO world. You, you might have mentioned this, but you were a, a senior vice president at Ryder when you left. Is that right? I was, yes. I was a senior vice president, and I was the CFO for their largest uh, business unit, which is Ryder Transportation Services. Wow. And um, it's interesting because we do find a lot of CFOs, their first uh, company they become acquainted with is often where they spent the most years. And you just explained 17 years at Ryder. What, what were you when you first arrived? I met. Were you in the finance function? I was an intern. That's right. That's I was right. an intern. I was an intern in the financial planning and analysis function. So at Ryder, you know, this is um, you are shaped by these early experiences in your life. And at Ryder, finance was the center of the universe. And I still today believe that finance is the center of the universe. There was no decision that was made at Ryder that didn't go through that finance function for some kind of evaluation. Um, and that, those principles actually, I think, have guided me through my entire career. And at Ryder, pricing, which normally is a marketing function, that was in finance. Well, that was because their product, their product was heavily finance-oriented. I guess there were heavy finance components in it. But it does uh, kind of give you a, a view to the world. And so I'm a CFO that believes we have to close the books and we have to report on a timely basis and we have to meet the SEC and GAAP requirements. But where we add value is around strategy, 
It's around, you know, shaping the direction of the company, giving the um, leaders tools with regard to are we on track, are we off track, and making those course corrections along the way through data and analytics and ultimately, Jack, the critical part, relationships. Nothing happens without relationships. I want to also point out that you left Ryder in 2000. You've had uh, your uh, three tours of duty as a CFO. You've been at Insight now for over 10 years. So uh, uh, you have invested time with each of the companies you were uh, part of along the way as well. Uh, and what's interesting as well is you're now in a different industry altogether. I would, I would say, and maybe you would point out, no, there are some similarities, but um, it seems to me that this transportation logistics at one point in time was really your, your career, your industry, and today we find you in what's a, a pretty high-tech professional services industry, or, or no? How do you see the world? Uh, I am in a professional services world, but I'm also in a uh, systems integrator and uh, solutions world. So today the big things that people talk about would be cloud and data center transformation. At Insight, our clients are primarily large enterprise clients or, you know, federal governments, state and local governments, and we're global in 22 countries across the world. So what we do today is we provide them, and we provide large clients, specifically global ones, the same uh, set of service tools across the globe, if they so desire, or in North America for sure. And we actually help them uh, become more efficient in terms of the ongoing operations of keeping the lights on in their IT organization. And in the last five years, we've made the transition into being more of a systems integrator slash app developer, more technical software developer so that we can actually help them figure out how to transition uh, and transform their business to the future. Once we got to the cloud, Jack, and everybody's in the cloud today, the next generation from there is digital. And with digital, you have artificial intelligence, machine learning, predictive analytics, and a whole series of tools that you need to be kind of cloud-enabled in order to take advantage of, and that is where the future is going. And the transition from transportation to technology, um, the drivers of technology are very different. They change far more quickly and they change the transportation, but the underlying dynamics about cash flow and return on invested capital and the analytics that we use around making decision making, around decision making that we have, are all based on the same financial principles. And I, it goes back to the foundation I had at Ryder and M&A is a big part of our strategy going forward, and I did a lot of M&A when I was at Ryder. Cloud services over the last period of your tenure has been growing exponentially. Yes. So when I came here in 2000, at the end of 2007, so my first full year was 2008, we were just over, just under a $5 billion company. And then 2008, if you remember, was the Great Recession across the globe. So we probably came out of that year at about $4 billion. Uh, and today we're like a $7.5 billion, tracking towards a $7.5 billion company for a combination of acquisitions and organic growth. Can you give us some sense of, since your arrival, how you've scaled your team, the, the talent, the people who report to you, as it grew? Um, can you give us some sense of how, uh, from year to year, as you experience this growth in the company, that you had to build your team or structure it differently? Sure. It's a great question. So when I arrived here at that Insight, they talked about the finance function but it was really an accounting function, close the books, 
report the our, our results to the external community and internally to the respective owners, but it didn't do any analytics or trend analysis, no, no real evaluation of the data, no, no roadmap for the future. And so one of the first things that I did, well, to be fair, I had to learn the technology space and insights business. But one of the things I did after that was actually try to create a um, SPMA team, a financial planning and analysis team. That's where I started in my career, so it's very near and dear to my heart. And I think of the financial planning and analysis team as being that kind of roadmap within the finance function that helps each one of the senior leaders across the, across the, the organization as well as the CEO um, kind of give them some tools that they can use to better understand the direction the business is going in and give them some actionable data that they can actually, actionable information that they can actually use to course correct as we move forward. It took me a few years to actually put that in place. But more recently, we've added a business intelligence team to that uh, that actually focuses on some of the tools. You know, technology has evolved incredibly. And there are now tools available that really smart guys this is a pejorative, it's men and women in that smart guy category. Um, they can actually use those tools to be much more predictive with regard to what is their client who has bought X, Y, and Z going to do? What are they going to buy next? How should we be arming our sales force with, with regard to the tools that they need as we, as, as we move forward? We did a major systems upgrade in 2012 so that all of our North American or APAC operations are on exactly the same platform. That actually gave us the scale to do acquisitions. Um, so we've actually grown our team, not necessarily in numbers of headcount, but we've grown our team with regard to the specific expertise. Um, the BI team is a bunch of brainiacs and uh, mathematicians and data scientists who, who actually look at data and make sense out of that data and report very simple dashboards back to the business. Um, we've upgraded with tools are, you know, how we impact collections. That's the core part of what we do because cash is king in any business. Uh, AP has been streamlined. So across the board, we've actually looked at all the areas within finance and how we can streamline the core-based operations that are the normal part of a, a finance accounting organization and then added on additional capabilities that we leverage. And I think the business acknowledges now is a significant help to them as they try to determine which direction, which project to take in the next certain ROI analyses, little tools that we've given them to do that on their own. But the finance function went from, went from being not a partner to the business to now, I think, being a significant partner to the business and gets kudos all the time with regard to uh, the reporting and the analysis that we can do on a pretty timely, quick basis in response to the question. This had to be something, when you opened this chapter, it was a different chapter from your earlier chapters, wasn't it? Uh, wasn't this um, uh, a different industry altogether? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, as finance leaders, um, this is tricky sometimes to do this. And, and maybe you're going to say, no, actually, they're, they're somewhat aligned. I don't know. But um, uh was this transition at all a little different from your earlier ones? So I will tell you the hardest transition that I went through was when I left the wider system to go to um, a company called Atel Logistics in ultimately headquartered in Singapore, um, but with a logistics um, operation that was global in San Francisco. That was the hardest transition for me to make because when you, when you leave a company that you've been at for 17 years, like I was at Rider System, 
what you ask yourself is, am I successful at what? Because I'm at wider system and the structure that they have, or will I be successful on my own? And can I bring principles that I've learned to a new organization? So I left uh, wider system and I went to APL Logistics, which was, I think, doubly challenging because 50%, maybe 40% of my time I spent in Singapore and China on that role, which was a whole different cultural experience. So I think that I had a finance foundation that was very, very strong. I took that finance foundation and ultimately became confident in that finance foundation, such that I could go into a totally different and new cultural environment and, and, and be successful. And then when I came over to Insight, I was confident that the finance functions and the finance principles were going to be transferable, but I didn't know the industry. I had to learn the industry. I had to learn what the levels were in our industry. And then Insight went through the transition. When I first started, it was a hardware and software product reseller. And through the strategic plan and three CEOs <laughs> um, later, we had a vision. We had a vision that said, this is the strategy what we want to pursue, and I was fortunate enough to be able to work with the CEO and the senior management team and drive that vision. And what we determined was that we needed to increase our capability to be broader than just a hardware, software, and services provider. We needed to provide solutions, move to the cloud, and leverage the cloud as a jumping board for what we wanted to be in the future. So when I first came on board, new industry was a little bit challenging, but I came into an organization that I actually didn't know at the time, but I actually could make significant improvement in because we didn't have this STME functionality. And there's no business today that can survive without that analytical capability. With that in mind, what are the metrics that you're paying close attention to? So I think one of the things that uh, we look at consistently here is we have a daily stat, which uh, tells us on a daily basis um, what products what, what, what is the trend in with regard to the product sales of that day? And over the course of a month and a quarter, we now have 10 years of data that we can look at and say, hey, at this point in a month or at this point in a quarter, this number of days, business days in a month or quarter, what is the normal trajectory and how are we stacking up relative to that trajectory? That's one piece that we look at. Um, we also look at what the backlog is from a hardware perspective. We look at what our backlog is from a services perspective. Um, and then we also have a commit process that's a weekly basis, so not everything we look at is daily. Uh, a weekly commit process, and that occurs in each one of our regions, North America, India, and APAC. Um, uh, they're on three different days, and so we sit in the CEO and the business leaders, and I sit in on all of those commit calls. And over time, what you, what you learn from the commit call is how the business is actually trending, and you can know that ultimately with regard to how the leaders are talking about it. So when we're on a commit call today, after years of experience um, in EMEA, for instance, I can know by the beginning of the second month of a quarter that EMEA is going to hit their budget because I know how each one of those leaders report their numbers. I can see what the tra trajectory is for that business, and I can walk away with a sense that they're going to hit their numbers or they're not going to hit their numbers. And, it, and it's aware now today, not because I'm a brilliant person, but just based on data and the relationships that you have and you know how people talk about their business and whether they're really really confident or whether they're shaky, you know where the business is going to be trending. And then you can make a decision about what do you want to do? How are we going to change it? What kind of bridge plan do we need to put in place to see if we can actually make the quarter, the month, or the quarter? And the other thing we look at clearly, because I mentioned that cash is king, is you know, our, our cash position, our debt, what we can think our cash flow from operations is going to be. So those are the other metrics that we look at. 
I will say, though, Jack, that I have a great team. Uh, one of the things that I learned early in life is that you're only ever as strong as the team that you have around you. And part of having a great team around me is that I don't have to spend as much time on the day-to-day metrics as I used to do that back, you know, 10 years ago when I first started. I can actually have a team that does that, and the BI, BI team gives me a great report that I can look at. Um, and I can spend my time much more on the strategic pieces and the initiatives and looking at M&A opportunities that are out there and making a determination if I want to grow digital innovation, how do I find those companies? Um, I can spend a lot more of my time on those aspects of business and on the kind of day-to-day metrics and management of those day-to-day metrics because my team is very, very capable of handling that. What about, uh, are there uh, non-financial metrics that maybe you didn't pay close attention to uh, only a few years ago but have become a more important part of uh, your everyday, whether that be uh, a metric uh, regarding employee attrition or whether it's um, reducing uh, the customer experience, whatever it might be, anything? Yeah, actually, um, we now do um, NPS. We have an NPS survey methodology uh, around teammates. We do that twice a year, so that is one of the metrics that we pay attention to. The comments that come through on that NPS net metric is another thing we pay attention to. And, you know, um, we started looking at uh, attrition uh, and the source of that retention a couple of years ago, and we had high attrition in our inside sales force, and we've managed to bring that down under control. We've changed some of the programs. We changed the salary and compensation structure, the commission structure. Um, so we do look at a variety of non non-finance metrics in terms of how the business is progressing. Each leader gets a report on their NPS scores, and um, like in finance in particular, we have a teammate satisfaction committee, and based on the comments that we get and the scores that we get on that NPS survey, uh, we actually, through the next year, uh, go back and meet with the teammates and actually plan activities or training sessions or, you know, leadership training was a big thing that came out a couple of years ago. We've actually uh, worked with HR to create programs around that. So all of those things lead into why does I think that Insight today is a uh, far more successful company than we were a couple of years ago. Uh, and we have seen an improvement in our trend with regard to um, our NPS score. And for us, culture is very, very important. And we have three key values, hunger, heart, and harmony. And it sounds very simple, but today, when I first started, we had 10 values. Nobody could remember them. And there were sentences. We converted over our brand and this uh, value proposition uh, about four or five years ago. And with that hunger, heart, and harmony, you can ask any teammate at Insight today about hunger, heart, and harmony, and they will know exactly what it is you're talking about. And also, we have a recognition program where, you know, you can give a shout-out to a teammate. Um, in a tool that we have and for anything, you know. So there's a lot of recognition within the company. And one of the things that I've learned over the course of my career is that people don't want to just be recognized for the big things. They also want to be recognized for the little things that they do every day. And this tool allows their teammates to recognize them for that. And I think that the improvement in our NPS score, the fact that we um, are we are on the top, uh, one of the top, well, 100 companies for diversity by Fortune 500, when we're, we're number 23 on the top 50 tech companies, is a tribute to, well, to Ken, who's our CEO, but also to the team, to the teammates and the culture that we have here at Insight. Not often you find CEOs, CFOs talking about that. You, you speak very comfortably about uh, the culture and about the, the three hunger, heart, and harmony. 
Um, is there, I, I'm curious about this intersection of workforce culture and finance, though. As a leader, you're, you're speaking the way any leader should in the C-suite. Too often, finance seems to be sort of on the sidelines when it comes to culture. Is there some way you believe or that you recognize uh, finance playing a key role here in, in a more uh, direct fashion? So I actually think that just today, as an example, I got a report from our HR team, and it was uh, recognizing the individuals, the top ten individuals in the company, that had, in North America, I should say, that had uh, received the most uh, recognition and nominations in in February, it's monthly, it comes out every month. And it turns out that there's one finance teammate in collections, not usually an area that gets recognized. There's one teammate in collections that was in the top 10 of 5,500 employees in North America. She was one of 10 recognized that was the most recognition in that year. And I say, and I make that comment in that, sorry, in the month. I make that comment only because that is part of what we want the finance team to be a partner with the business such that. We're helpful. We're not a blocker. We're not the no. We're not always the no. Sometimes we have to say no, but part of it is understanding. Um, part of it is understanding uh, what is it the, the leader, the sales guy, the solutions expert wants to accomplish, and how can we actually help them get there. And what we try to do in finance is become that partner to the business through relationships to making these meaningful connections. Our purpose at Insight is to make meaningful connections to help businesses run smarter. And that's the same philosophy that we have in finance with regard to how do we serve our internal customer. There's some of us who have to serve the external analyst community as well. But how do we serve our internal customers? And then through those meaningful connections and giving them in a timely, consistent manner the information that they need to help them make the decisions. Interesting. I, I think the example you gave is great. It's, it's revealing how the members of your team are today recognized as uh, representing the culture best. And uh, that uh, speaks to finance uh, at large, which is so cross-functional today and so collaborative. They have to be so collaborative today that finance executives arguably more than other uh, executives in other parts of the organization have to be uh, the champions of culture. Am I uh, maybe overstating that, or how do you look at things? Yeah, well, I think we have to live the values, and because I tell the team all the time, finance is the center of the universe. <laughs> um, and so that, you know, <laughs> if, if we're going to co continue to be the center of the universe, then we have to really live those values. And I know my team, they always tell me to a higher standard around those values, because we are that we're the gatekeepers and that each one of us individually is the gatekeeper of those values. But but there are things that we end up seeing in finance that we can help people correct in terms of behavior or um, analyses that we can give them that says, hey, here's a better way for you to go about winning. You don't have, you know, my philosophy, one of my philosophies is win right. Not just win, but win in the right way. And part of what we do in finance is help teammates in the sales area, particularly, and in our solutions area, get to that right win for the company and for themselves. Well, we always have sort of our signature question where I ask for a finance strategic moment. I'm sure you've had many of these over the time of your career. 
Um, but it's when uh, your lines of sight in the organization allowed you to see an opportunity or risk. Anything come to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? Um, you know, I will say that because of uh, our focus on M&A recently, I'll go back to the a period in time in 2008 when I was just joined. We did an acquisition that was not a good cultural fit. And at the time, maybe we didn't realize it wasn't, it wasn't a good cultural fit, but that acquisition was not a very successful acquisition for us, I should say. Uh, and we didn't do an uh, acquisition for a couple of years after that. Through our strategic planning process, we determined we really need an M&A strategy. We need to be good at M&A. And so we used that acquisition that was such a failure, colossal failure, not because of the business that we acquired, but just because the, our two cultures were so very different. Um, and we came to a conclusion that there are three criteria that we now use when we look at acquisitions. The first one is, what is the strategic fit? How does it fit in with the strategy that we're going to be driving and that we want to drive for the future? The second one is, what is the cultural fit? How do they treat their teammates? How do their teammates behave uh, among and with each other? How do they, where does the customer fit in their hierarchy? How do they treat their partners? Uh, we go through a whole series of meetings with the executive leadership team of the, of the target to be able to make that assessment. It's not what they have on the walls. It's really the dialogue that you have with the executive team. And then the third one is financial. Does it meet our economic hurdles and uh, the returns that we need for a transaction? And we have to go through that process and that whole cultural and strategic impression um, cultural and, um, sorry, uh, strategic fit are the two critical things for us before we get to the financials. So we did an acquisition in 2018. I think we closed in uh, September of 2018. It was in a new line of business for us. It's a digital innovation solutions group. Digital innovation acquisitions are more expensive um, from a, you know, a multiple basis than uh, kind of more insight trades today. So anytime we're making one of those acquisitions, it becomes really critical for us to determine it's all about services and solution executives and technical engineers and architects and app developers. We have to be able to retain the people. And in order to be able to retain the people, we actually have to um, look each other in the eye and come to a meeting in the minds with regard to the culture of the company. So we've acquired Cardinal after a year, and uh, I would say that four of our senior executives, including myself, were out there in the first meeting with the target, looking them in the eye to make the determination about what is this cultural fit, and then as we go through the process, meeting other leaders to be able to make that determination. Cardinal has come into our portfolio in September. It's been a short period of time, so you could argue it's still in the honeymoon period, but it is by far the best acquisition that we have done in recent years by far the best acquisition, and I think part of that is related to two things. One, it was an excellent cultural fit for us when we talked about our values, what they actually live, the videos that they showed us about how they live their values, that's one. And the second thing is that they do really, really well financially. And usually when you do an acquisition, that first cut over from their company and kind of integrating into our company or any company, that's really where stuff falls out. And we have to make sure we we kind of do a white glove treatment so that we retain all the employees and we have been amazingly successful with Cardinal. When we come back, we enter the mentoring round with CFO Glennis Bryan. After this. The business landscape is changing quickly. 
As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We're going to jump to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor future finance leaders. What is it that's exciting you today about finance and business? You know, what's exciting me today is that there are so many tools that are available from an analytical, data analytics, predictive analytics perspective that we in finance can leverage to help uh, across the business, whether it's marketing, whether it's sales, whether it's the uh, business leader of, um, of North America or some, some one of our leaders in Europe, make more effective decisions about where to spend their time, where to actually spend their dollars. Um, one of the things that we, we did a couple of years ago was do a whole education about capital, capital allocation, liquidity, cash flow. Um, and how it is we're going to be making decisions on a go-forward basis. And today, with the pace of change in technology, we need to constantly be vigilant in terms of investing in the right talent, number one, um, and investing in the um, looking at acquisitions that are really going to help us change the shape of what we want to do going forward. And that's where finance plays a key role today. And that is what is exciting about all the tools um, that are available for us from an analytical perspective. Right. So. Looking back now, at the first time you stepped into a CFO role, and that was, I guess, uh, well, it might have been at Ryder where you had a, a, a group under you, or it might have been a standalone uh, CFO role. What do you wish someone had told you? What's that piece of advice when you, you take on that sort of leadership burden where everybody, you know, the buck stops with you? What is that piece of advice you wish someone had shared with you? that the book does stop with you and that you have to have a great team working with you in order to be successful. So there's no success in I. It has to be a we. I know it sounds so trite, um, but, but realistically, I think that when you first step into a leadership role, you try to do it all yourself. I, you know, you don't want to delegate anything or you're scared to delegate something and you micromanage too much because you want to make sure that, you know, you're going to be successful. Well, the reality is that you have to rely on your team and you have to bring your team along. You have to develop your team. You have to supplement the team, maybe change out the team. But you have to do those things pretty early on, early on to make the determination about whether this is a team that's going to be successful going forward. And I wish somebody had told me that earlier on in my career because I think I was not an effective delegator. I wanted to do it all myself, and I wasn't as focused on developing my team as I should have been in those early stages. Uh, you mentioned how uh, one of the more challenging transitions, of course, was when you left Ryder, and Ryder was where you had been from the time you stepped out of college, um, and, and you were an intern there. Um, I, did you use a? Um, did you turn to a recruiter to help you uh, move to your first standalone CFO role? 
I did. Um, so I used Spencer Stewart. I'm the poster child at Spencer Stewart because every job I've had, I've gone to Spencer Stewart. Um, and I sit on a board of a publicly traded company, and I got that through Spencer Stewart as well. So I did use a recruiter. What I will say is that you never know what paths are going to cross. So the recruiter from Spencer Stewart that I first worked with used to work at Writer Systems. That's where he first knew me from. And so he knew me really well coming from Writer Systems. And I, I think this is important for, you know, up-and-coming finance professionals or any professional really to know. You don't know where the contact is going to come from. So every interaction that you have, you have to be on your game every single day in every interaction that you have. And um, you have to actually establish a body of work that speaks for itself, and that is actually what gets you to that next level, whether it's in another company, in the company that you're in, or on a board. You know, eventually all of us may aspire to be on a board of directors. Um, I think that that's how I categorize my experience that got me to that next job. And when he talked to me about moving to San Francisco and working for a company headquartered in Asia, I didn't necessarily jump at it. In hindsight, it was the best decision I ever made. So opportunities come to you in different ways. And sometimes you have to be willing to take a chance and actually explore that opportunity. And it's a growth. It's a growth experience. You clearly had a uh, positive career-building experience at Ryder. Uh, one of the questions I like to pose from time to time for finance leaders, however, is that when you look back, uh, as far as career building is concerned, could you have moved on sooner into a CFO role? And is that something you've ever thought about? So I, I, went, I would never had that question asked of me. People usually ask me, um, would you go back to a writer? Do you think you, you should have stayed a writer? Um, I always answer no to that question. Should I have left writer earlier? I could have left Ryder earlier. I don't know that I would have. I think it was uh, when I started at Ryder, I thought I was going to be there for 30 years. I was going to retire there. <laughs> that's so not, not the way people think today, but back then, <laughs> that's what I thought. So it never crossed my mind really to think about leaving before, and I was learning and you know, moving up the hierarchy, and life was great. But I think that could I be even, could I be even more successful today? Maybe, maybe. But I learned a lot at Ryder System, and um, I think that it's a big part of why I am a successful CEO, CFO today. Clearly, I have aspirations to be a CEO, but, you know, that's for another day. <laughs> okay, well, that's another podcast, too. So. <laughs> what, is there a personal habit or part of your daily routine that you believe has contributed to your professional success in some way? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I don't know if it's a part of my daily routine. In the morning when I wake up, I need about a half an hour of quiet time on my own to kind of have my cup of coffee, look at my calendar for the day, and figure out what it is I'm going to be doing going forward. I don't know if that's part of what has made me successful. The other part of my day that I have is that I do try to walk around the office periodically. You know, like, like and if I see people in the hallway, I stop and I have a conversation with them. So I think that. Those two things, I think, are part of what has helped me. I also think the fact that my undergraduate degree is in psychology has helped me. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? 
So there's a book I would recommend to any leader who's stepping into a team and wants to assess a team. Um, not necessarily finance, but it works in finance as well. And it was actually a book that um, Ken Lamnick, when he became the CEO at Insight, he had all of his uh, direct reports read, and then we had a conversation about it. So it's a book by Patrick Lencioni. It's a very easy read, and it's called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And it's around the dynamics of a team and how do you how do you change the dynamics of the team, how do you improve the dynamics of the team, how do you determine if you have a well-functioning team. And at the back of the book, after you've read the little vignettes that are uh, scattered throughout the book, it gives you almost a little primer about how you could actually do this on your own. Just read the book, have your team read the book, and then go through a conversation with your team based on questions that they have at the back of the book. And it's just incredibly helpful, I think, in terms of just getting being able to assess the team you have, where the gaps are, and what you need to do about it. And any anybody leading a team, you know, I think would benefit from that. It's an easy read, which I think is also critical. Great, great selection. Okay, we're up to our final question, where I get to ask you to look forward finally and tell us about your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months. Oh, over the next 12 months. So it would be ensuring that uh, we continue with the growth in our solutions area. So I know it seems like it's not a finance issue, but yes, growth in our solutions area by supporting those teams with the analytics that they need in terms of where to target, et cetera. Um, it would be improving our underlying growth margin. Um, one of the uh, things that we at Insight uh, need to improve is our overall growth margin, and we have plans with us how to drive that. We in finance play a role there with regard to where do the incentive dollars come from, how do we actually help the leaders determine uh, which products to support, et cetera. And then maybe overriding all of that is making sure that my underlying team dynamics are sound and that the team is developing and that we're maintaining um, our connectivity to the business partners that we have. And then one of the ones that we'll work up to be very specifically is M&A. Glennis Bryan, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate it. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.